Well, we come to the end of this sermon series. Oh, oh, I'm getting waved at. Get out of here, children. Get. There they go, up to second grade. They're going like this to me. They're all like... It's always bad when you're standing up here as a pastor and someone's going like this in the back. You know, it's either this or it's this. Right? Pointing to the watch. That's, which means nothing to a preacher, but that's... Well, we come to the end of this series of uh, sermons, I guess you can call them the post-sabbatical sermon series on what concerns Jesus. And maybe there's some things that you would say at the end of the series, uh, these sermons, um, seven in total actually, but you would say, well, there's some things I would have said that concern Jesus, and, and I'm sure there's many, many, many things I did not touch on, but I want to remind you of what the hope of this series was, which we stated at the start, which was to unpack what concerns Jesus, hoping we will hear the heart of Jesus. And so the question I have today is, what has your heart heard over these weeks? The thoughts that I've been sharing were first preached um, to me during sabbatical, most of the time in periods of intentional silence and designated solitude. As we give time to silence and solitude with God, Scripture and prayer, as we give that time, we can then hear the concern of Jesus rather than the echo chambers that we often surround ourselves in, in our busy lives, in our noisy world that we live in. Am I giving priority to Jesus' voice or to other voices? We've got to be honest about that. In fact, today's a a sermon about honesty, really. The extent to which media, social media, cable news, internet conspiracies, etc., have become the primary discipler of American Christians is very concerning. It's disconcerting. But I want to remind you of these words that I first shared back in the summer. As long as the preliminary transitory concerns are not silenced, no matter how interesting and valuable and important they may be, the voice of the ultimate concern cannot be heard. And that is the model that Jesus offers us, yes? In the Gospel of Mark, we read these words. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. And this is what we want, right? Isn't this what we want? We want to be like Jesus. So what have you heard in these weeks? The acronym I've been using for this series is the word CHURCH. So the C is Christ and his kingdom, and we said that the wrong question was this, if you died tonight, would you go to heaven? And we said the right question was, if you live today, whose kingdom will you live in? More important question, because if you live today for the right kingdom, the dying part will take care of itself. The H, the first H, was hope and holiness, that this light from Jesus for our lives is intended to be the light of Jesus through our lives, and that's a great definition of holiness. The light of Jesus in our lives becomes the light of Jesus through our lives. The U is unity and witness, and we ask this question, what if the glory of God in our world today 
is not seen in some, some miraculous, powerful spiritual experience of God's power, but rather, what if it's seen in the oneness and the loving service in and through the community of God's people? At least that's what Jesus said. And then we talked about our renovation and transformation, and we asked two questions. We asked, am I a different person since claiming to follow Jesus? More important question, do I really want to be a different person? And then last week, we talked about the second C, caring passions and constant pursuit of Jesus. And we asked the question, is there anywhere in my life that I'm not where I'm supposed to be in God's world and not caught up in his life? Because we said, when you're lost, you're not where you're supposed to be. And we were reminded that God, such good news, God is in white-hot pursuit of every one of us. Amen. And that brings us to the final um, letter of the word church, which is another H. Um, And that H is humility and the world. Well, when we were on sabbatical, we worshiped in different settings. Um, I'm sure Pastor Mary and Joe got to do the same thing. Uh, We worshiped in the open air of Boston, an outdoor service. And we also, from there to all the way to a tiny little church on the edge of Lake Champlain, on the western edge, in a a little community of about 2,000 people, which was our first congregation. We worshiped there as well. But one Sunday, in all of those Sundays of worshiping elsewhere, the sermon that we listened to was painful to listen to. It was said to be based on the Beatitudes, and at one point the preacher turned to Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, which is our core text today. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. What a good word that is, right? It's a great word. And remember, remember what we just said a little while ago, we want to be like Jesus, right? Well, the preacher went on to say this. We must remember that meekness is not weakness, but it is actually strength. That's good. It's good stuff. But then he defined that this way. You see, I am being meek when I want to punch someone in the face because of their stupidity, but I don't. And I took my breath. See, one of the occupational hazards of being a preacher is when you go somewhere and you're already like exegeting a passage of scripture in your mind. And I heard that. And the remainder of the sermon was filled with other aggressive allusions throughout the whole sermon targeting those whom this preacher disagreed with politically, in sports, and entertainment as the people he'd want to punch in the face, but won't. Is that like Jesus? I have to tell you, it was cringeworthy. And I share that with you because from that point on, I began reflecting and listening and thinking about the nature and the reputation of the church in our land. Now, sure, there are levels of misrepresentation in the media with false stereotypes 
of Christians and church. Absolutely. But you know, it becomes really easy to point at that and not point here. So can we be honest and say that sometimes we as Christians can be our own worst enemies in how we behave, especially towards the other, and especially in the name of Jesus? This week, uh, Elon Musk made headlines. You've probably heard about it. He's made a number of headlines. When you're the world's richest man, it could be that way. By the way, at the start of the week, his fortune was $311 billion. And then this morning I read it was $286 billion. Don't know what happened. But he said he would donate $6 billion to address world hunger if it could be proven that that $6 billion would alleviate it. And that's a very interesting story. I think it's very interesting. I think it's even more interesting if he actually carries through with that. That could do a lot of good in our world. But there's another famine that no amount of money is going to alleviate. No amount of power. No amount of secular resources. And that is, we have a famine of humility in the land. And that includes the church. In the name of strength and power and even saving the world, we in the church lose our way when imitating and using the weapons of the world, forgetting the constant call in all of Scripture to the place of humility. Now, few people, religious people and non-religious people, will dispute Few people will dispute that Moses was a powerful leader. But what was his secret? Well, in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, it says, Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. And then there's Jesus himself. Both religious and non-religious people, no one will dispute that Jesus was great. And Jesus said this, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. But he's saying, learn from me. But his first thing out of his mouth after that is I'm gentle and I'm humble in heart. And that is what is behind, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. But what happens when we're not meek? Well, Susan Muto says this, when we are not meek, we will exude displeasure, exude displeasure. We'll pick fights. We are prone to insult people. We lack patience. What flows from our mouths is not blessing, but barbs. But according to Jesus, we have it on authority from Jesus that meekness gives us the earth. That's what he said. You see, it does not require strength. It doesn't require strength to berate and to belittle and to shout and to slander and to demonize and demand and malign and manipulate. But it does require humility to actually leave the imprint of Christ on the earth, to actually be great. Bob LeMay asked me this morning, you know, so what does humility look like? 
And when we start preaching about humility, we got to somewhat be careful, I think, because the moment we stand up and go, you know, I've written a book called I Am Humble. <laughs> it's like, okay, you know, I'm probably not going to read that book. <laughs> well, my friend Dennis King, in fact, if there was, I don't typically dedicate sermons to anybody, but if I was going to dedicate a sermon to anyone, this sermon, it would be to Dr. Dennis King, who pastors in Ohio. Today's his last Sunday in his church. And this man has demonstrated to me so much what it means um, to be a humble man of God. And I've been thinking about my friend all week long. Well, he posted something recently that speaks deeply to this whole idea of what does this look like in the church, this meekness, this humility, in real, in real terms. And he writes this. In our search for the right church for us, with my kind of people, with the programs I need, with the style of preaching and music I like, where no one bothers me or offends me or criticizes me or challenges my belief system, let us be careful we aren't actually running from God's church for us, where he wants to teach us to love people different from us, where he wants us to learn how to serve without always needing to be served, where he wants to show us how to honor one another's preferences above our own, where we who are imperfect discover how to love and forgive and bear with and learn from other imperfect people. In other words, Jesus' right church for us might not be the one we would choose for ourselves. Jesus' right church for us may very well be the people who will help shape us on the rugged and often humbling pathway of becoming more like him. The week after I heard that sermon on meekness, right, the Lord is so good. I heard a great message at the Good Shepherd Church in the Nazarene in Keysville, New York. That's where Kathleen and I cut our teeth when we began pastoral ministry. And we sensed the Lord wanted us to go back during sabbatical, to go back to that place, to touch once again, to, to just kind of touch the first breath of this pastoral call. And so we did. And during that message, Pastor Noel Eichenberger, she preached a powerful word. And she asked this, if this was the last day I spent with the people in my life, what would I say? More importantly, what would they say? Would they know I have been with Jesus? She was talking about the disciples and how the Bible says they looked at them and they knew they had been with Jesus. Would, would they know that I've been with Jesus? I think that's a significant question for us as we confront this famine of humility in the land and in the church. You know, the truth is, the want for greatness and power and uh, the center stage, all of that is nothing new. Nothing new. In fact, I mean, think about it. The disciples walked with Jesus Christ for three years, and this was a constant problem for these guys. Constant. 
They were walking in Galilee one day, and there they are. They're arguing about who is going to be the greatest. And what I love about that story that we find in Mark chapter 9 is Jesus busted them. Right? They get done, they're arguing, and when he gets the chance, Jesus says, what were you talking about? And they get, you know, you can hear the pin drop. They get dead silent. And then he says, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. And then they're entering Jerusalem. This is like, this is Holy Week. This is, we're coming to the end. You know, the, the, the shadow of the cross is just ahead of them. And they're entering Jerusalem. And James and John, well, they're angling for power and prestige. You know, Jesus, can we sit with you at the, can we be at the head with you? And there, they break into another argument. An argument breaks out. The other disciples are jealous. They're probably jealous because those guys got to Jesus first. <laughs> but Jesus says, whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. He then even goes on and says, and you know, I didn't come here to be served, but to serve and to give my life away for the ransom of others. Even the night before his humiliating death, right after the Last Supper, they are at it again. And Jesus says to them, you know, the way of the world's power is not to be your way. And then he says, you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. See, exactly. I mean, we read those passages of Scripture and we can quote them, but and they're powerful. There's a famine of humility in the land and the church, and it, for the church, it's compromised our influence at times in this world. And when I read the Gospels, it is clear that this is something that concerns Jesus very much. He brings it again and again and again. But what's at the heart of this? Well, this is a paraphrase of St. Augustine, who said, God being God offends human pride. Because if God's God, and if I truly allow God to be God, that means I'm not God. That means I need to set aside my way and my want. That, in fact, is at the heart of one of the greatest, if not the greatest recovery movement in the world, Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, Bill W. and Dr. Bob Smith, when they founded that, these two alcoholics, one a stockbroker from New York, one a surgeon from Akron, Ohio. When, when Philip Yancey writes about them, he writes, first of all, they said this, we had to quit playing God. That's what they concluded. And then they said they need to allow God himself to play God in the addict's life, which involves daily even moment by moment by moment surrender. In other words, it takes humility. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. But let me ask you, does, is Jesus saying here that we shouldn't have drive and ambition? Is that what Jesus is saying? I don't think so. I would suggest that drive and ambition are actually God-given desires 
But what Jesus is saying and what Jesus does is he renovates and he transforms drive and ambition. The ambition to have power and the desire for others to serve us is transformed to an intentional choice. Hear that. An intentional choice to humble ourselves and to serve and to do for others. Now, the preacher that I mentioned at the start of this message was right when he said meekness is not weakness. And that's very true. The, the word used here for meek is the word preus. And that word has no English equivalent. The word meek is, is the best we have. But there's no English equivalent to the word originally used. It has multiple meanings. First, in, in the classic understanding to the Greeks, the word meant this. It meant a soothing medicine and a gentle breeze. Blessed are those who are a soothing medicine and a gentle breeze. Is my life a soothing medicine and a gentle breeze to others? But before you think that meekness is just about some kind of milk toast approach to the world, we need to understand that that word has another meaning, and it means the taming of a wild animal. That's what it means. It's like a, the wild horse who's been running across the fields, who's been running unrestrained, but then they're broken. But they never lose their power. They do not lose their strength. Now, rather than running at their whim, now they're under the master's control. It's strength in that case, that wild animal. It's strength that is redeemed for a greater purpose, that is redirected for a greater purpose. J.D. Walt writes the daily seedbed text, the daily text. It'd be good for you to Google that and read that every day. But just this week, he wrote about meekness in these terms. He said, a meek person is not a weak person, but one who has come to understand that the Lord has no need of their strength, only their surrender. And now, get this. Unbroken strength is an impediment to the work of God. Could you say that with me, please? Unbroken strength is an impediment to the work of God. Meekness is broken strength in humbly surrendered reserve. So it's not the loss of strength, but now the strength is in reserve to be used for God's purposes. And this has an impact on eternity. This has an impact on forever. Going back to Augustine, he said this, almost the whole of Christian teaching is humility. If you were to ask me, however often you might repeat the question, he was saying this, by the way, to a young protege, to a young person he's mentoring. If you were to ask me, however often you might repeat the question, what are the instructions of the Christian religion, I would be disposed to answer always and only humility. The psalmist agrees, Psalm 149, for the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adores the, adorns the humble with salvation. And I think in this day, we really need to take note. You know, again, J.D. Walt says this. This is a word of warning. He says, stop trying to take the hill. Jesus took the only hill that matters, Calvary. Love that. Then he says, cast aside your outrage. 
put on love, become meek, great awakening will depend on it. Or must we wait again for everyone over 20 or 30 years old to perish in this wilderness? You know, this, this past summer, Dr. Russ Long preached, and he gave you the statistics of young adults leaving the church. And one of the reasons they are is this very issue that we're talking about today. It's important for us to think about this. This concerns Jesus. Jesus said this in Matthew 23, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. What do we do with that? Well, the first thing we need to identify is that there are two verb tenses here. When it says to us that those will be humbled, those who exalt themselves will be humbled, that's in the passive tense. What that means is this. It means it's something out of our control. It means we're going to be humbled by something out of our control. But the second one, those who humble themselves will be exalted, that verb phrase, humble themselves, is active. And what does that mean? Simply this. It's very counterintuitive to our understanding of humility. Humility is a personal choice. It's a personal choice. Too often we locate humility in personality and emotion. But that's not what biblical humility is about. It's about a personal choice. So if you're humble, it's because you decided you were going to choose a life of humility. If you're not humble, it's because you decided you weren't. Now that's counterintuitive to so much of what we say about this. But let me get at it this way. You may remember, you maybe read it, maybe you didn't. On September 29th, we published a newsletter article, A Beautiful Mandate. In reflecting on the manner in which the world, and especially we in the church, have dealt with pandemic protocols and restrictions and those kind of things, it seems to me that we have often taken hold of the values and the attitude of the culture around us rather than the Christ within us. At least, let me just say it this way, I know that in my own heart, let me just confess to you, that I have had to constantly bring my own heart before God in this. Constantly. For a number of reasons. But there I wrote these words. The beautiful mandate is about choice. Not freedom of choice that casts off restraints on my self-interest, but rather the holy choice I make to love my neighbor. We find it in words like this. In humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. And then I write this. It has always been that way for God's people, this strange, countercultural, beautiful mandate of placing the best interests of others especially those weaker than us, before our own. It is one of the clearest demonstrations of holiness of heart and life, sanctification and action, and gives integrity and form to our claims of loving God before a watching world. Without this, as the Bible says, our words, are, are about fa- our words about faith are nothing more than a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal, as Paul so poetically puts it in 1 Corinthians 13. Humility, humility in surrender to God 
transforms our ambition from individualized demands to Christ-like desire. Lee Eklov writes this, Humility is not easy to fake. Those who come boldly to God's throne of grace become right-sized. I love that. When we give ourselves to God, when we make this space, when we, when we carve in our heart the kingdom of God over our kingdom, we become right-sized and God becomes God. Not just a faith in God, not just a, a belief in God, not just a religion about God, but it becomes our life. Build my life upon his love, we sang. And our lives become right-sized before a holy and merciful and gracious God. I guess I'm saying it this way. It is not enough to simply follow Jesus. It is the way we follow Jesus that will leave the imprint on the world. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 7, we find some of the most mind-blowing words. You know, Scripture, when you really just sit with Scripture and you let it read you, it's amazing. This redemptive story of God. It's amazing. And we read these words. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, he made himself nothing. Now hear this. Hear it. Here, here's, the, here's the good news. Being in very nature God, he made himself nothing for you and me that we would gain everything of the grace of God for us. Let that settle in on you. If the divine Son of God, the only one entitled to everything he could ever want, the only one, if he saw that choosing to embrace humility was the path to changing the world, what does that say to me? About the world. About my church. About my family. What does this say to me? This is what concerns Jesus. This is the answer to this great famine in the world. This is within our grasp. The power of the love of God. The movement of the Spirit of God in our lives. And the good news of the gospel of a Christ who became nothing that we would gain everything. What is that answer? Well, Jesus demonstrated that answer to us. And that's why we gather at this table. Pastor Mary is going to come now and guide us through the Lord's Supper as we remember the one who made himself nothing.